This is In Search of the Pluriverse. We are Sophie Creer and Eric Wong. Join us on our quest for a world in which many worlds fit. We were invited by Het Nieuwe Instituut to be the first curators of their traveling academy. You can follow us online at pluriverse.hetnieuweinstituut.nl Last week, it was Dutch Design Week. An excellent opportunity to find sparing partners for our warming up to the Pluriverse talks. We chose Foundation We Are because of their agenda for change and their intelligent play with the personal and the institutional. The direct reason for the talk was the fact that Bernard, from Foundation We Are, drove around in a small van to map the Dutch social design field for this edition of Dutch Design Week. In the end, we did not address the van. The conversation you're about to listen to chose its own path. But Bernard's van talks can still be found in the references of this recording. Enjoy! Welcome to this fourth warming up talk in which we speak with social designer Bernard Lenger from Austria and architectural designer researcher lecturer Cornelia Dimitrova from Bulgaria. You are both part of the Eindhoven-based Foundation We Are, uh, which functions both as a playground for your different individual practices, uh, but also as a joint design consulting agency that wants to transform social and legal systems. I got that last part from your website. Um, we will start this talk by shortly introducing you. So over to Eric. Yes, Bernard, welcome in this talk. Uh, almost hitting 30. We just learned, <laughs> studied at the Design Academy, Men and Leisure, and on the Creative Industries Fund talent page, we Googled, of, uh, as you can see, uh, you are listed on that page and you call yourself a social and communication designer working on awareness campaigns. And you say to do this, materializing found information is crucial. And I think we will get back to that later in the talk. Currently, you're participating in the Embassy of Water as part of the World Design Embassies. And um, you were also talking about it this morning in your morning D Design Week talk by Jeroen Junte. And you were talking about your project, which, is, which circles around the idea of water animals. Can you tell a little bit about that? The Water Animals is a, a campaign where we searched how we treat and deal with water these days while we are seeing it as a product and as a service now which um, relocates responsibility away from us towards an organization i'm trying to reconnect ourselves with water and to show the possibilities how everybody of us can take care of water again and we like the idea that we can look also at water as a companion or a friend and not just as this sort of anonymous commodity that comes out of the tab. And you co-founded uh, Foundation We Are, uh, with which you led the This Is Ecocide campaign. The Ecocide campaign is also not really from the foundation, that's more from my studio. So it was before we actually founded the foundation. 
Yeah, but I was I was looking at it and I was really triggered by it because I thought, why why is it so formally uh, designed? You know, these flags, this sort of mock-up UN uh, building-like uh, sets. But I don't think we're going to get into it. But we're going to talk later a little bit about how form, content, purpose, actions, uh, how they are all related. So we we get back to the bigger picture of uh, of that in your designs. Uh, over to you, um, Sophie. So our second speaker, we are with four of us today in this talk, is uh, Cornelia Dimitrova. Welcome, Cornelia also. Um, and you bring in a more uh, architectural perspective uh, and uh, systems thinking also in the, in the foundation since you graduated at the Technical University in Eindhoven. It's actually uh, quite laudable. I, I find that the, the foundation we are combines people from both the Design Academy and the Technical University because I know how many boundaries there are between the two institutions <laughs> in that city sometimes. Uh, you are currently working as an architectural researcher. You are especially at the moment developing, uh, you write speculative scenarios for the future development of a, a mental health organization uh, in Eindhoven, the Grote Beek, GGZE. Uh, you've also recently this year become a member of the editorial committee of the architecture journal OASA. I was wondering which, which issue were you part of? Um, well, hi, first of all. Thanks for this great introduction. I'm part of the core editorial board of issue 107, which will come out somewhere in the beginning of December and do, do find it and get it. It's about the drawing in landscape architecture. It's about what is the agency of the drawing? What does it mean when we represent the situation? And how do we switch from that elusive moment of representing to actually designing and projecting? Um, how do we, yeah, how do we create knowledge and who is participating in these drawings? Wonderful. Well, you've already queued a lot of the topics that we will get back to in this talk. You say uh, also, I've looked up your, so your, your own studio website, where you say that you seek to offer spatial and investigative design. What really struck me is that you seem to have a very clear impact, uh, idea of the impact that you can make and also that you may perhaps cannot make. Um, meaning you describe your impact on society as the possibility of generating data, of acting as a decision-making tool uh, but also you talk about educating the public on topics which are uh, simply too complex. Um, so in, in this act of vulgarization is something we will also get back to in this talk and how to juggle this complexity of, of the life that we are in. We didn't rehearse this in the run through <laughs> in the last hour. And the question for both of you is, uh, who is the we in foundation we are? Yeah, and we ask that because if there's a we, you imply that there's also a them. Well, I would say that it also doesn't. I mean, um, something which, one of the reasons why we wanted to be called foundation we are is because we are all human rights, water, the planet, the trees, humanity, the universe, the stars. Uh, and it is much more not about separating we and them, but it's actually drawing a circle that we're all we. If I cut a tree, I've also cut something from myself potentially. 
That's a beautiful answer. Bernard, would you, does your answer of the we differ? Because that's what we're interested in. I don't think it differs that much. I think the division between we are we and them is also made by us. It's us who say them, but if we don't say them, it's also we, I think. We're also very interested in how did, how did, did the two of you meet? Because Sophie and I are a collective or a team or a duo, you could say. You are also part of a collective. And we're, you, we know how complicated, but also interesting it is to work together and to find mutual grounds, but also sometimes to go for your own, had to, to find your own way within the collective. And the second question is, how does that collaboration of you work? Big questions, short answers. Bernard. We, well, we met through um, Cornelia's partner. Uh, Cornelius Partner Hanna is, uh, she graduated with me, so that's where we actually met, I think. And I think how we, or we in who we are in the foundation met was uh, this close relations of mine, actually, which I had. So, because when we started the We Are Human Rights Projects, uh, I invited the seven other designers to work with me on this to also be sure that the sensitivity which is needed in the work can be delivered. So I think that's where the we came together. And once the project started, everything exploded. And then we said we should manifest the we into a foundation, to an organization, a living being. So the first time I ever saw burning uh, in my life, I believe it was at a party from the Design Academy, or yeah, I'm not sure if they organized, students organized it, but it was a party in a club in Eindhoven. And I think back then it was probably a few days before he was about to go for his internship to England. And I was maybe two months away from graduating in architecture at the TU Eindhoven. And yeah, I mean, I guess, also where we met really was later on when he came back and started graduating on the topic of ecocide. I had recently graduated on the topic of waste management and waste in the landscape. Um, so it's all this kind of systemic view, I think, which is where we really met. Exactly one year ago, um, nearly on the day, <laughs> you sent as a foundation, uh, you sent a letter to Europe to the 751 uh, then just elected uh, new members of parliament. Uh, and you wrote this letter, you say, because you wanted to encourage these policymakers to remain, and I quote you here, hopeful, wise, and flexible. <laughs> uh, so we're very curious about this letter, uh, why you chose the form. Um, and we were wondering if you can start with, with reading out loud a few opening lines of the letter for our listeners, so they get a, a feeling um, of what the letter is written like. Um, so the letter is dated on 19th of October 2019, as you said, one year ago. And it goes like this. Dear Sir, Madam, welcome to your mandate as a member of the European Parliament. Foundation We Are, based in the Netherlands, congratulates you for entering office as one of the 751 designers of Europe for the next five years. This letter contains no flagships of protest, calls to action, nor any political demands. 
On May 23rd or 25th or 26th in 2019, you were entrusted by your people to build a Europe that embodies their hopes and dreams. Over the next five years, you will have the honor and responsibility to justify that trust. Without a doubt, this will be a daunting task that will require you to be wise, creative, and flexible. Wow. Why we um, also were interested in this letter is the form of it, as Sophie said, because in the we question, you can elegantly say, well, there is no them because we are all we. But uh, when you write a letter, there's always somebody who sends it and there's always somebody who gets it. Um, and that makes it very hard to escape from. So I really wonder what those members of parliament did with it. Is there any um, feedback on it now, a year later? Well, we are not sure what they have done with our letter. Um, we have sent a big part of the letters, all the letters which uh, during the design week, our visitors to our exhibition purchased a stamp chosen at receipt and they sent a letter. So in a way we wrote the letter, we proposed to send it, uh, but it was also quite a selective process of who sent a letter to who. I agree with you that in, in sending a letter, you draw a line. There's me at one end of the postal service and somebody else at the other end of it. Um, but then for us, what this letter did in terms of impact, uh, because I cannot speak of the impact it had on the MEPs. But for us, it was a moment in which we said, okay, we are together, we are collective, um, and we want to, to work with, with everyone who's enacting social or, or legislative or spatial change. How do we get in contact with these people? They're also designers. That's important to say that they're also designing. So in that sense, they are like us, they are us. Um, but we've elected them and then there's this bureaucratic machine of Brussels which makes it so difficult to understand who are these people, um, what are they really uh, about and how can we reach to them as, as fellow human beings. Mm -hmm. So the letter felt like the way to do it. And did you also send uh, one, each of you personally, Bernard? Did you also choose a, a member of parliament? buy a stamp and, and send one? Or was it only the visitors of the Dutch Design Week and the other people you called upon who, who did that? I, I think I did. I, I think who I sent it to was, a, was an Austrian politician. She's also a chef, actually, I think. And she's in the European Parliament. And I, I really like her approach. So I wanted her to, because for me, the letter was a letter of hope. It was really an encouragement letter, uh, not even to draw a line, but just from one designer to another to tell like, hey, good luck. And I really wanted to send this to her, but I, I can't recall her name now. But did she answer? That's the more important. Did, she, did you ever receive a, an answer from her? No, but that's also the mystery of uh, the postal service because actually we never know if they have received them. So it was probably sent to some obscure post box in Brussels or? I mean, when we get a blue envelope in the Netherlands, it means you have post from taxes, taxes authority. Was that a play on this bureaucracy for you, the, cho the choice of this blue paper? No, there was an aesthetic choice of the installation because in the end we had the 751 letters standing yeah, like there as uh, seats in the parliament. And so people could take one from the um, installation and 
then buy a stand and put it in the mailbox. Mm. Well, let's let's try. Maybe we can get that Austrian politician to listen in to this podcast. What would you like to say to her today, Bernard, if she's listening? Well, I actually just recalled her name. Her name is uh, Sarah Vina. And I think what I would want to tell her is that, um, and uh, probably not only to her, but it's just that like, there are so many young creative people who really want to just help and to support them in their challenges. And that even though they're in the fortress of Brussels, they should just open the doors and let the help in. It's not always opposition, it's often help. That's on record, wonderful. Both still uh, European citizens, but you're from Austria, Bernard, and Cornelia's from Bulgaria. So how does that still uh, affect your choices as a designer to, to be related to a specific place in Europe? Or how does that influence your life in a way? For, for example, Cornelia at the moment, uh, the protests are still going on in Bulgaria. They started on July 9, I think. And so it's been ongoing. It's not been without violence also. Um, I believe it's mostly young, a young generation also protesting against corruption. How, how does that play out in your life as a, as a citizen here in the Netherlands? What's going on over there? It plays out in the sense that I feel like I live in parallel realities. On the one hand, I follow uh, all the events which take place. Um, I do that, by the way, through the free media and not the one owned by uh, alleged mafia participants. And on the other hand, I live in the Netherlands, which seems to be quite a peaceful and calm country working, of course, with its own challenges, but not... Uh, not at the scale of uh, devastation that you can see uh, happening in Bulgaria. You say that you act through free media. What did you mean? Uh, there are a number of, of uh, news outlets which are actually uh, privately owned or are somehow independent enough to publish uh, a version of the truth that I would subscribe to. Such so as uh, Radio Free Europe, for instance. Um, among others. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And Bernard, how is it for you uh, coming from, from Austria and where also the, the political context is, has not been softening in the past, in the past years? I mean, I, I am always uh, still proud to be Austrian and I think it's wonderful to keep the cultural background from it. I think the, the political one is just a very tricky one. I mean, it has been improving in the last months years but uh, there was a huge issue of course with uh, the extreme right party where one of the moments where we call it the ibiza scandal which actually cost them their uh, political power in the end because they became unreliable mm. and um, now we have uh, green slash commercial uh, conservative uh, leadership, which is which is better, but the, the problem with conservative leadership is just that they're very smart and they very much know what they're doing. So they can implement uh, policies and legislation and uh, things which are good for people who already have money. 
So uh, that is that is difficult. Yeah, and I mean, when I hear you to um, speak of that, it, it reminds me of a, a passage in the book of Designs for the Pluriverse, which I also sent you earlier this week uh, by email. I sent you a scan from it, where um, Arturo Escobar, the, the author, uh, he's quoting a design theorist, Susan Stewart, in the way that she says that every design act always inscribes itself in a temporal trajectory or it takes place at a historical junction or, or crossroad even of different histories, right? That are, that are coming together. And one of the points of Escobar is that the challenge um, is really to, to try to uh, address these plural histories within your practice. So I was wondering how both of you uh, and all, within your own practices, but also with the foundation, how you try to do this to address these plural uh, histories. And Eric, I think he wanted to add something to my well, question. I think we all as designers, because Sophie and I are also designers or makers or editors, or we always have to deal with the fact that the world is super complex and sometimes incomprehensible. But as designers or communicators or people that tell stories, you somehow need to simplify it or condense it or change it. like. Bernard, I quote you back in, in your introduction, you said that the materialization of information is really important in your work. But within in the process of materialization, you cannot live up to the complexity that surrounds us. So there's always this the choices that we need to make to, to somehow make it tangible or, or make things work for an audience. So how do you do that? I think for the foundation, one really interesting part is about the fluidity of the team. So like, because in the bubble of the we are, of the foundation we are, is there are nine at the moment, but just some are more active than others. But they, you always stay linked. You always have some relationship to the foundation. I think that's really interesting of like how you can use each other's expertise uh, within this bubble. I think that makes this quite valuable background information you can rely on, for example. That's, I think, for the, within the foundation, quite interesting. You also use each other to, let's say, multiply the perspective then that you may have on something that's going on, that you kind of keep each other in check. It's also a place of reflection, I think. And this is really, because, I mean, if I think about uh, Maxime Benvenuto, one of the people who are in the foundation, when I reflect with him on my work, I get completely different insights, which I would never have even thought of because his mind is wired differently than mine. I mean, while I try to implement more uh, experiences of people, uh, he is very much into research and very much into like how does the, the scientific aspect, the, the knowledge aspect actually get a meaning in, for example, my work. And when I reflect with him, and it's really nice how he can then look from a different perspective, from a more academic perspective on what I do, for example. Mm. Within the collaboration, you create your own complexity, you could say. Of course, the collaboration, it, it, it shapes my way then as well. I think if it's a project which I work on, for example, the collaboration between me and Maxime and this might be talks, it helps me to find a different path. And then 
I think that's with all of the people I talk to, all the knowledge experiences which I encounter during the process. It will always push me on a different path. It will always just guide me at a crossroad to say like, oh, now you have to go left. Mm -hmm. Now you sparked my mind because you mentioned the word crossroads. So you helped me get back to the original question of the historical crossroads and how we, how we engage with histories and plural histories in our work. How is that for you, Cornelia? Um, for me, the, what became also quite interesting with the letter was this whole concept of Europe, which is in itself a, a kind of pluriverse with uh, its origins and traditions and cultures. And then suddenly here we are, a country which 30 years ago had a communist party at, uh, at its government. Um, when do we become European? Have we always been European? I think that was something uh, which I'm currently reflecting on and something which, by the way, I hope to develop into an upcoming OASI issue, specifically on what are the, the spatial or even what is that concept of Europe? Um, yeah. I've lived in several countries. I've lived in England, I've lived in Italy, I've lived in Bulgaria, of course, also in the Netherlands. And I must say I've felt at home everywhere. Am I a special case, perhaps? But... Um, yeah. Hmm. Perhaps also for you, I, I, I would, I'm interested to know a little bit more about the mental health project that we, uh, that I mentioned shortly in your biography in the introduction of this talk. How does, for example, in such a, such a commission that you're working on, how do you deal with complexity within that uh, as, a, as a designer, as a researcher? Do you develop certain tools? Do you work in certain ways? So in order to understand that the place, it's, um... It's quite a large park of 120 hectares, one third of Central Park, if that means anything. Um, I, I needed to understand how the place works and who, who are, are the people or actors or participants in this place. Um, so in order to do that, I started just mapping, mapping all the, the things which sparked. Um, and I did it in a way where what was in the beginning a cacophony, a complete uh, all sounds from everywhere. I started uh, developing this mapping technique where I could attune my ears to hear better specific voices. Uh, so in this way I could hear the very quiet voices and map them on equal terms as the very loud institutional voices. Um, and what this does is it legitimizes all, all scales of existence in that park, uh, but it also means that you can then start interrelating those layers. You can start almost conducting this orchestra and uh, start producing music out of it, I guess. And, and what's your aim then within this, um, this mapping process? Is it to show the voices, make visible the voices that are unheard or make visible certain pains that you are sensitive to or certain issues that you find within the, this organization? Or like ultimately, what is this map for, for you? Uh, ultimately, the maps are an archive of knowledge I've collected, um, but the aim of collecting the knowledge was to enable me to develop, to project future scenarios for how the place can, can develop further. And I felt like I did not want to project my own perspective, even though that's unavoidable. Um, I did not want to fully project my own perspective as this architect with the bird eye view, uh, drawing on the map and changing people's lives. What I wanted to see with these maps is what kind of change wants to happen so that I can design 
spatial tools, but maybe also organizational tools to actually support this change in its wanting to happen. I think it also somehow links to another topic that we wanted to address with both of you today, the question of inclusivity. Uh, yesterday, your foundation streamed a, a seminar called Social Design and Genuine Inclusivity. Um, and you really asked the question of how can design and especially social design be truly inclusive, right? Like beyond good intentions. <laughs> and uh, I was especially struck by one of the speakers you invited, Kailin Rosalina. She was speaking about the built-in biases that each of us carry uh, between us, but she was also speaking about her education and how she had a, a white teacher, yeah, basically teaching also a very limited perspective of what design can, can be in, the, in this world. Um, and Eric, you were also watching uh, the TV show on Monday that was curated by Social Design Showdown with non-experts of social design. You want to say something about what we heard on Monday because that ties into it a bit? Well, I first want to say that I'm also a white teacher and um, uh, I do recognize uh, what Kayleen said and I totally agree with it, but sometimes it's really hard to follow up on it. So I'm a white teacher. I'm also a queer teacher. Um, I'm seen as a white queer teacher. Things are expected from me as a queer white teacher. But in the end, I'm just a human being. So I, I really try to escape all these sort of labels that are put on me. And at the same time, it's super important to stand there as a queer white man or as a queer black woman or as a... So th there is a sort of a, a strange dilemma in this whole decolonizing debate, you could say. Um, and I also think, and that's what I got from the, the show on Monday, is I was really inspired by Hilary Cotton, who was brought in as an example in that show. And she says that um, things speed up, do, things do change faster than they used to, but that doesn't mean that things can be uh, fixed quickly. There are no quick fix in this life or this world. So, um, yeah, I think we just wanna ask you how how on your end you're trying to, to work in an inclusive way. Well, this, uh, what you just said reminds me really of a story by George Orwell. He uh, spent a few years of his life uh, in Burma, I believe, and there he was kind of part of, uh, he was a functional person of the, of the British Empire. And these stories of the perspective, written from the perspective of such a person who is sitting in his office, uh, he's kind of the governor of the little region, and somebody runs in and tells him there's an elephant raging in the village. Um, do something. You're, you're the, the, the governor, right? You have to do something. Uh, so he, in his kind of shock and, and panic, and what is even a raging elephant, um, he just says, give me my gun. And in that moment, in saying, give me my gun, he creates this expectation in everyone. And he's walking with these people. Okay, bring me to this elephant, which is raging. He's walking and he's sort of acknowledging the fact that he has just generated a lot of expectations. People start voicing those expectations by, oh, he will probably kill the elephant. He arrives and finds that elephant, not raging, but calmly drinking water in a field. So he's wondering, it doesn't seem like I need this gun for this case because whatever happened is over. On the other hand, 
the people, the crowd is already excited and they, they just start screaming, shoot the elephant, shoot the elephant. So in that moment of having full power, he also loses it because the whole crowd just presses him and just says, this is what we expect of you and you have to do it now. So he shoots the elephant. Mm. It doesn't, it just falls, but doesn't die. It shoots it a second time. Uh, it's still alive, uh, but he can't bear to see the rest of it. So he just leaves. But it's what you just said is there are characters which we are being, which are being imposed on us and we have to perform. Right, and and that's maybe something which is also happening to the design field. Is that so, something you you try to free yourself from? Definitely, definitely. As an architect working on a park in Eindhoven, uh, all the time I was being told I have to produce a master plan. And the one thing which I don't want to end up with now in my project is a master plan. This site does not need a master plan. It needs maybe an action plan. It needs needs maybe a curation plan, but not a master plan. Um, but I'm an architect, so I'm supposed to, that's one of the things I'm supposed to do, right? Uh, so I'm fighting it in that way. That's nice. It's nice that you're fighting it with words also. No? And Bernard, how would you want to respond to um, who is part of the processes we set in motion, the expectations that are put on us that we need to carry? I think what yesterday in the webinar also happened was then that there was a question from uh, somebody via YouTube where he said like oh is there if the self-driving car doesn't detect a, a black man or if it doesn't detect a white man because it blends in in the background is this still a racial issue and well I think one thing which is quite important to realize is that even though it might be an issue in our system it really it comes out of uh, inclusiveness and inclusiveness and diversity issue because if you, for example, have a soap dispenser who doesn't dispense soap for black skin, you would have found this problem if you would have had a more inclusive team. And I think that this is not only, like this is a case with a lot of things also in different projects where we try, where we tend to kind of like make our own truth and don't listen to all the experts which are there because somebody living in the street also can have yeah, valuable information in that sense which can bring your project forward it doesn't always have to be a planner and I i'm wondering now um, linking your story to that of cornelia is uh, forming a foundation is that a way also of freeing yourselves or, or like being out of certain categories or kind of being able to move differently to have another agency to do things differently? I mean, a, a, a designer working alone or a designer working in a duo or in a, or as a foundation or as a collective, it all means something different. Like you are seen also in a different way, I think. Yeah, there's a, there's a quite funny thing which always happened in the beginning because when you went to people and you told them like, oh, I'm Bernard, the designer. And then they were just like, oh yeah, this young person, designer, whatever, creative. But if, if I went there and said, like, uh, hi, I'm Bernard Lenga, I'm the chairman of the foundation we are, it became a completely different conversation. So it was really like the respect which was brought to me because a foundation in, of course, in most of the countries means there's a lot of money. So the respect which was brought towards me yeah. is completely different. And I thought it was always very entertaining how the conversation was different if I introduced myself like this. It reminds me also of, of another uh, aspect of, of 
design practice in general, but also especially social design, which is also raised in the book by Escobar. And it's the question of interdependence and relationality that, that every creation process uh, happens um, in, a, in a situation of co-emergence of different phenomena, right? And every creation process is relational in that sense. And what Escobar um, describes is that what we need to do is to become more attuned to the relational fabric of life. So you could actually say that that's a very holistic take on the notion of uh, empathic research. That's a more, I think, known term that is used usually in relation to social design by writers like Enzo Manzini, but also um, Bas Reimakers of Standby has written about, about empathic research. We spoke about empathy last week in this podcast series with uh, Mariana Pistana of the Istanbul Biennale, which is completely dedicated to, to empathy. Um, we were wondering, like, how do you both in personally and professionally like attune yourselves to life? I mean, it's, it's a huge question. <laughs> we like to end with, with huge questions. For me, um, in, in my research over the last two years, I discovered that there is really no difference between climate change and, and uh, a burnout or, or mental illness. Uh, it's just about, it just reveals that there's a system which has programmed to take and we participate in the system by taking. Um, and instead, I think that uh, such a similarity or such a kind of parallel between mental health and climate change is actually quite productive because through thinking about both of the topics at the same time, it gave me new ways to empathize with each of them. Thinking of madness is what is happening to the planet. Thinking of ecological devastation is what is happening to uh, individuals. Um, it's really revealing to me that, that giving perhaps is something we need to focus on more. I think something which, at least a way of how I try to stay attuned to real life, let's call it, is uh, I try to see how we make barriers with our language. I think often if we research, we have a lot of knowledge, but we also see the important issues in our society. But we make an assumption that this issue is important for everybody. So that's why we say people have to change. And a quite interesting example was uh, the talk yesterday. There was an architect who, who made a plan for a building which would reduce the tap water consumption of uh, 80% in a building. And it was a renovation of a social housing. So when the, when the moderator yesterday asked him, like, okay, good. And how what do the people think who live there actually of this new plan? Uh, he told that the, the housing agency was telling them, well, don't bother about these people because they're too busy surviving. So they can't be, they will never give you an answer. This will never be part of your plan. And even himself, he, he kind of thought that there was no option. And when, when I heard this, I was really like, I was shocked because I thought that he just didn't ask the right question. I think sometimes communication is essential uh, to also to connect to other people and sometimes you need to use different language. Yeah, and it has also a lot to do with the fact that we assume a lot. There's so many assumptions, not only in from our own perspectives, from who we are and how we were brought up and 
in which circles we circulate, but also in the words we use. So I find it very revealing that a word like, like the makeability of, of the world, for instance, is something that we as designers want to believe in. But how makeable is that world actually? So if we don't really um, ask the, the, the owner of the problem at the table, uh, it's impossible to solve that problem. And again, there's no quick fix in that sense because that, those processes take a lot of time. So um, it was quite the woman who said it, and uh, I'm always bad with names, Sophie, but you know who it was. René Frissen of the René op Open Embassy. Yeah. He made a very sharp and good point about, yeah, the easy, the, the, how easy it slips in to, to to have assumptions and to use words that we think are objective, but in, in fact are very subjective. But you both give us two very beautiful directions as a compass. No? The compass says uh, giving for Cornelia, and it says uh, maybe not mind your step, but mind your, mind your language for <laughs> Bernard. Um, or mind, yeah, take care, perhaps take care of the words you use because take care is maybe nicer than, than minding. Yeah, thank you to both of you. We've come to the end of this talk. Time has been running by, as you can see. It's exactly 4 p.m. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'm always really bad with scripts, as you have been noticing, but um, <laughs> this was the fourth talk in the series In Search of the Pluriverse. Stay tuned for the next warming up talk that will take place in two or three weeks time. For more background on this project, you can dig into our Traveling Academy web magazine at pluriverse.hetnieuwinstitute.nl. You can read the book via the link that we posted under about, and you can follow us on Instagram at In Search of the Pluriverse. Your hosts today were Sophie Grier and... Eric Wong. And the pan flute tune is composed by Jaco Miri. In Search of the Pluriverse is part of Traveling Academy, an initiative of Het Nieuwe Instituut Rotterdam that explores how formal and informal knowledges can reinforce each other in tackling social and spatial issues. Ta -ta 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 -ta. This is when the tune comes in. <laughs> Bye, thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs> Ciao. Ciao. Thank you.